Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a new podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab. Hello, thank you so much for joining us for the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab podcast series on racism, health, and life. Our podcast from the Activist Lab is Advocation Change It Up. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined today by two of our student advisory board members, Rolando Trejos and Natalie Krozik. Hi, Rolando. Hi, Dr. Liller. And hi, Natalie. Hello. The Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at USF, College of Public Health Activist Lab, you will see all the educational programs we have, our boot camps, our seminars, our research on a variety of public health topics, and advocacy. And of course, our work to assure students have great practice experiences in the community, at the state, and national levels. This podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates whose work has led to great improvements in public health. We'll be talking in each podcast with a guest on a public health issue, and we're going to end each podcast by asking how we, as the community, can advocate for change. And I have to add, the views expressed reflect those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of South Florida. Well, I cannot think of a more important issue now than that of racism and its effect on our health and, for that matter, our lives. This series features leaders in academia and our community about these topics. My guest today is Dr. Abraham Salinas, a research professor here at the College of Public Health and director of the Herald Center for the Study of Family Violence. At the Herald Center, they conduct epidemiological and mixed methods research on trauma and family violence. He also serves as the Associate Director of the Center of Excellence in Maternal and Child Health. He has directed and implemented epidemiological studies using a variety of methods such as structural equation modeling, fixed and random effects meta-analyses, joint point regression for trends, and mediation analysis using binary logistic regression, just to name a few. Dr. Salinas's topical areas include intimate partner violence, adverse childhood experiences, juvenile violence, health-related quality of life, perinatal epidemiology, substance use disorders, and training of health sciences students and professionals. So thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Dr. Salinas. Hi, thank you for having me, Dr. Liller. Very good, it's great you're here. For the audience, first I wanna define structural racism, and then we'll go from there. From the article from Gene Ford for the Dubois Review, structural racism is defined as the macro-level systems, social forces, institutions, ideologies, and processes that interact with one another to generate and reinforce inequities among racial and ethnic groups. For structural racism, it does not require the actions or intent of individuals. In fact, even if interpersonal discrimination were completely eliminated, racial inequities would likely remain unchanged due to the presence of structural racism. Some examples of structural racism include segregation, different employment opportunities, different educational opportunities, healthcare options, immigration, and more. These are the ways that these structures allow racism and the inequities to thrive. And of course, these elements become barriers that affect our health and the lives of our families and children. 
So Dr. Salinas, let's start with your research on adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and how you believe racism or structural racism has played a role in your findings. Thank you very much. Adverse childhood experiences, it's not new as a topic of research and in public health. And in fact, since the 1997 seminal study from Kaiser Permanente, we know that adverse childhood experiences are one of the strongest determinants of health that influence more than 40 different diseases. Um, how does that relate to racism and discrimination now? Well, um, adverse childhood experiences are these um, traumatic events that mm -hmm. happen before 18 years of life. Okay. And racism and race-based trauma, it is a type of trauma, and it starts as early as in the mother's womb wow. by affecting pregnant women, their offspring, and when they grow up, they grow up in an environment that uh, is a racist society, and therefore that results in traumatic uh, experiences for children, youth, and adults as well. So it is one of the most uh, pervasive forms of adversity, racism, and discrimination. Unfortunately, it's not measured typically in adverse childhood experiences study, but that's what I'm trying to do um, through my different projects um, to expand the typical adverse childhood experiences, which are usually child abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. So the structural racism in our society then is felt by these children in the womb, as you're saying, right? So this whole idea of racism because of the lack of opportunities that may be for the parents, right? And for what's going on around them affects the development of the child. Right? right, and then as the child is born, right, if that racism continues, there there continue to be issues yeah. with that child. So, Rolando, do you have any questions on this topic for Dr. Salinas? Yeah, thank you so so much, Dr. Salinas, for being here. I was just wondering if you can just tell me what similarities and differences you can see in the study of um, racism and discrimination. Um, when it comes to motives of gender and when it comes to motives of ra racial or ethnic backgrounds? Thank you for that question, Rolando. Um, before I address it directly, I'd like just to clarify that for our audience what we mean by this structural racism and what, what does it mean structural per se? Are we talking about a building or what? Um, we, we're talking about structure, the structural determinants of health. When we talk about those that shape power, wealth and prestige in a society. So because everything else comes from that, racism is one structural determinant of health because it shapes who has the power, who has the wealth, and who has the prestige in society. So with that in mind, um, when you think about uh, the relationship between racism and other um, uh, thinking of minority status like gender minorities or class, uh, socioeconomic uh, classes and other uh, minority groups. What we see in African-American women in particular, uh, we see a composite of this advantage because all these layers in the hierarchy of society are composed because of race, because of class, because of gender. Um, so this is what we um, call about intersectional approaches. We need to, yes, think about racism, but at the same time, how does it interact with gender? How does it interact with class uh, in society, as well as other um, characteristics? Yeah. Thank you. 
Thank you. Natalie, do you have some questions? Sure. So a child from the beginning since birth, like you said, in the womb can already experience structural racism. So my question is, as a parent, how can you raise a child in a world that is um, kind of built off of structural racism? How, as a parent, how can you raise a child to grow and be protected from such establishments? Thank you for that it's a question. a very good question. And uh, it is extremely good question because that is the question that many African-American parents ask themselves when they're thinking about having babies. Um, because they have grown in, in a society that every day they are victims of microaggressions. They know their children are coming to those microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about the big stuff like uh, over forms of racism those are macroaggressions right microaggressions are those things like people do not smile at you just because your your color is different your hair is different people don't choose you people don't invite you to parties people don't uh, ask you how can i help you when you get to a store just because your color is green microaggressions they grow up in that environment and therefore um african-american parents they consider that um, and it's uh, if you ask many couples, the, it's it's a topic of uh, discussion. Unfortunately, um, I am not in, uh, the one person that I can tell you what we can do because this is one problem that everyone as a society need to address. Mm -hmm. um, and it, we don't have the answer yet, but the the first step to find that answer is to have these discussions about talking about the effects of racism and discrimination throughout the life course. Now for mothers, um, we know that if they have been exposed already to a life course of disadvantage. So by the time they're pregnant with, with their children, already their bodies have taken a toll, wear and tear. So it might be already too late for, for them because African-American babies are two times more likely to die in the first year of life just because wow. they're born uh, from, uh, in, in this uh, uh, society um, uh, where race, systemic racism mm -hmm. is prevalent. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that that is related to racism and how it affects pregnant women um, during um, their gestation. Mm -hmm. It affects epigenetics, meaning it changes the way genes yes. are on and off regarding stress. It's regarding stress. This is such a fascinating area, right? Epigenetics now, because we're finding that all of these forces on you, whether it's structural racism or even just discrimination, right? Interpersonal yeah. can affect you through stress. And that literally the genetic makeup changes. Yeah. which is amazing so, and in one generation without changing your genetic code that says which color of hair you will have or right. eyes because epigenetics is mm -hmm. about turning on and turning off right. genes right. so it will turn off and turn on certain genes right. that create a, a brain that is in survival mode yes. all the time meaning yes. always in in a perceived threat mm -hmm. response mm -hmm. because you're always in this context that you're always uh, receiving aggression yeah. and results in frustration and resulting angry uh, I mean in anger um, and what happens we also see that african-american populations are on average uh, poor and also they live in neighborhoods with poor resources f uh, food uh, insecurity as well uh, low quality schools and housing so what happened all that also impact parenting and that's more structural and that right? is a structural that's what yeah. we yeah that's the issue of structural racism yeah. so it, it's, it compounds the issue 
You know, uh, Dr. Selene is following up on Na Natalie's question. If you are the parent, right, of a child and you, and you have faced this racism in your own life and also during pregnancy, let's say you're, you're the mother, what do they have to do because of structural racism? I mean, do they have to uh, work so much harder to find those educational opportunities for their child, right? To find um, employment opportunities for themselves, right? So it becomes a more difficult process right, for the family than if you were not, you know, if you weren't affected by structural racism. And without going to um, African-American pessimism, which is something that we had to address as well within communities, believing that no change is possible, right. it is important to highlight that even those people with high-paying jobs mm -hmm. and like lawyers and physicians who are African-Americans, they suffer systemic racism. So even mm -hmm. when parents are able to find those opportunities for their children, they still suffer the toll mm -hmm. um, compared to their counterparts. Right. Um, so it, it, even if we address as a society some of those opportunities, if right. we don't change the whole system of education, yes. policy, laws, laws. Um, mm -hmm. then even when you provide just better schools in one neighborhood, that's it's not going to solve racism. The same mm -hmm. is if you just like make people treat each other magically better, uh, it's not going to solve racism. Um, but we need to look at a, a whole the law entire reform. Thing, yeah. The entire yeah. structure. And I always say, you know, too, that, um, you know, we look at employment, you look at segregation, you look at things like that. But in educational institutions, which we're all from, we're not innocent either, right? When it comes no, to this not. whole idea of being part of the educational system where you still have structural racism. Right. So, right. yeah. So we're, and, and it's important to address that. And it's, uh, I'd like to just mention there uh, for academia, um, we're all influencing, you know, many government institutions mm -hmm. like, uh, or strategies like Healthy People 2020, Healthy right. People 2030. They talk about the social determinants of health. But what is missing really, it's a critical race discussion, mm -hmm. critical race theory discussion, meaning mm -hmm. that it's not just the social determinants of health, but it's actually who has the power, wealth, and prestige, mm -hmm. um, the structural racism. Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh, I have a question here. Um, are Latino children, do they experience the same type of feelings and racism that, you know, we talk a lot about African-American, but for the Latinos, right, is it, is it the same? or different, do you think? Very good question. And what do you mean by Latinos as well? Because it's yeah. one way to call, to designate a group uh, that the census measures, but Latinos have many faces, many sure, different origins, many cultures, many uh, assets at disadvantages as well compared to other groups. However, we know if you look at the statistics, for instance, in maternal uh, and child health, mm -hmm. um, African-Americans still have the greatest burden of disparity. Okay. Now, what do you, you mean by Latino children? A Latino child can be African-American too, can sure. be black, particularly mm -hmm. when they come from the Caribbean. Right. Um, and so they, they do also report levels of racism as well. And the, if you look at different studies, you often see this pattern of uh, experiences of racism and discrimination, African-American the most, then Hispanic, right. then Native Americans, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and as well as other uh, ethnic group. Mm -hmm. But remember, defining 
a person just on the base of one characteristic like ethnicity or race, right. it's, it's just a narrow view because you still need to talk about gender, class, language. There's so many other yeah. things yeah. that yeah. unfold into yeah. that. Correct. Dr. Salinas, I was actually um, wondering, in, in this same line of thought, um, when we talk about modern racism and racial profiling and individual responsibility for addressing um, privilege, what can we do in the individual spectrum to address the fact that, for example, we walk faster when we see an individual that is perceived as um, black behind us, walking behind us, um, that we are totally more likely to um, select someone that is perceived as um, white um, for a job or for, an for um, a position in the academia or for being accepted into a college and all the whole concept of racial profiling. How can we address those biases and those stigmas and stereotypes and prejudices in our own selves? Yeah. That's a good question. I, I mean, it's, it is very structural, but, and even though, you know, like we said earlier, Rolando, and I'll let Dr. Salinas uh, answer here too. Um, to me, uh, even if we got rid of all that, you know, if people didn't feel that way and change that, you would still have yeah. the structural racism. But I think it's a good point. It, it still exists, right? And it's something we have to look at ourselves. Dr. Salinas. Yeah. Very good point. Um, so f first I'd like to clarify by addressing this question. I do not uh, abide by the idea that it's only interpersonal mediated right. uh, racism mm -hmm. what the problem is. In fact, right. that's just an expression of a system, yeah. right? And mm -hmm. Growing up and embracing cognitive patterns uh, in our way of thinking uh, is just a product of the system as well. So um, those uh, implicit biases that we have mm -hmm. against others who are different from us, uh, one thing that we can do is try to uncover those from the unconscious mind to the conscious mind. So you consciously try to learn new ways and experience new experiences right. to kind of start changing the cognitive patterns. But that is an uphill battle if you don't change the community, the social systems, right. the economy, right. the yes. policies, and, and the law. Yeah. Uh, so, and the media as well. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's not gonna be easy. It's like, for example, let's say two friends are outside and they see a beggar on the street. One friend says like, wow, too many people panhandling here. And the other person said, because it was sensitive, right, uh, to structural uh, determinants, but don't talk about that, you know, this is poverty, this is a consequence of society. So the other friend think by himself, to himself, okay, I'm not gonna talk to him anymore. <laughs> so the, yeah. how do you control for that? Right. That you cannot. Right. So it's only perhaps youth like yourselves that would like to kind of explore what are our implicit biases? And as professionals, as instructors, we need to do the same. Mm -hmm. We should not be afraid of uncovering those. Right, because yeah. you have to, you have to address it, yeah. right? Yeah. You can't be like, oh, I'm yeah. not gonna say anything about this, right? So, um, so Dr. Salinas, you've discussed racism and ACEs now, which is so interesting. Could you expand a little bit more on your research as, a, as structural racism relates to family violence? Thank you for that question. Uh, by family violence, uh, it's a term that emphasizes the context of violence. 
But uh, my research goes to different forms of interpersonal violence, meaning uh, intimate partner violence not necessarily happens within the context of family, mm -hmm. elder abuse, child maltreatment, sexual violence, and youth violence, of right. course. So in the context of family violence, adverse childhood experiences, because children grow in the family, therefore they tend to happen within that context. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that racism being one of the strongest adversities that right. children endure, right. that results in victimization. Mm -hmm. throughout a lifetime mm -hmm. and victimization results in trauma okay and that it, uh, when we talk about racism the and victimization mm -hmm. that is race-based trauma right so race-based trauma causes changes in the attachment for instance relationships to uh, how uh, a child attaches to the parent influences attachment adult attachments mm -hmm. in, in the future mm -hmm. so children who have been victimized are more likely to become victims in the future Mm -hmm. and become perpetrators. And that is due to the traumatic responses, mm -hmm. the damage that trauma the psychological has already done to has them. Already done to I them. See. So it makes them more vulnerable to victimization mm -hmm. and perpetration. So mm -hmm. to, perpetu yeah. to perpetrate the violence as yeah. well as be victims from the violence. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's very sad because then what happens, we see, uh, particularly in the field of family violence, uh, mothers are, uh, or like when you see child welfare workers going into African-American homes, there are studies that says that they're more likely to remove the child from those right. homes, and they're more likely yes. to, uh, mm -hmm. even the system, the, the judicial mm -hmm. system, is more likely to act uh, against the, the mother or the parents mm -hmm. and incarcerate the parents. So what happened when you incarcerate a pattern? That's one of the adverse childhood experiences as well. Sure. So you have generations of families where one of the parents is incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what does that do to a generation? Next sure the next time. Sure, and I think it yeah. sets the stage for all kinds of things, right, as you mm -hmm. said, right. for potential future violence and all of that. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting. It's like a one builds now, on the one other. One of my like uh, most recent paper that we published in uh, earlier this, this year, we look at um, a community needs assessment data that uh, examined the role of racism and substance use as a way of coping with racism. Yes, yes. And mm -hmm. we found that actually individuals in uh, in the community who have been exposed to racism and discrimination right. are more likely to use uh, alcohol use in this case alcohol use uh, as a way to cope mm -hmm. with the stress caused by racism yeah. so what is alcohol and substance use disorder yeah. it's another upper childhood experiences mm -hmm. so we see how racism is a structural determinant of health right. and it shapes the a likelihood that other adverse childhood experiences will happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So basically, ACEs do not cause racism. It's the other way around. Racism right. causes ACEs the in the ACEs. context for African Americans. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, this whole issue of racism, I've been asking my guests on all the podcasts this question because I, I can't figure it out for myself. So <laughs> I'm asking the guests. That's what I can we, do. <laughs> <laughs> we've. we've um, We've known about this for a long time. It's not like we woke up yesterday and said, oh, ho, there's structural racism in the world, right? So all of our advances, everything we've done, um, both in medicine and public health and in, in all the fields, why is it still with us? Why has it perpetuated? Why, why hasn't it been addressed as fully as we're doing now? And we may not be addressing it fully enough. 
even now. So why do you think that? Why, you know, issues of violence, ACs, that they've been forever, right? I mean, it hasn't been like you woke up and said, oh, violence might have a relationship to racism. You know, so why do you think it's allowed to exist in the United States? Oh, well, <laughs> you just need to look at the history. Yeah, <laughs> but so we just need to go back in time. It's just amazing to me it's lasted. Yeah, you know. uh, but the thing is, and very sad uh, to say, uh, even though all the movements, uh, social rights movements that happened during the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. uh, made significant strides, mm -hmm. and you see like victories in judicial uh, in, in courts, like for example, Brown versus the Board sure, of Education and all sure. that, even them, the, the society continued to serve um, a group in society that holds power. Right. Um, and there are um, thinkers that says like, you know, every progress that you had seen for African Americans actually happened because there is still benefit for the white majority. Yeah. On mm -hmm. econo economics. Right. Like, for instance, um, he, th in, in this is something that uh, Dr. Derek uh, Bell, mm -hmm. one of the thinkers of critical race theory, mm -hmm. um, he made a critique that actually Brown and Board of Education mm -hmm. happened because the convergence of the interests and uh, advocacy of racial minorities, but at the same time, the interests of the white, That's right. uh, powerful groups. Yeah. So they converge. Mm -hmm. Why do we see now a greater focus as well? Um, Yes, everything happened uh, right now with the pandemic and you see yes. George Floyd in the media, mm -hmm. but it's also converging with uh, these other interests nationally that we, uh, there is a pandemic, you know, there, there's also a, a political shift, mm -hmm. there's also elections coming. Of course. So w we, it's very interesting what we see the phenomenon right now. Yeah. Um, so what we really need to do, right. and happen from the beginning of the United States, and I, I, and I may be bold at saying this, mm -hmm. is to change the makeup of the law. Because mm -hmm. on the law, every everyone is equal. Even courts say, abide mm -hmm. for that. And everybody's right. equal, right. equal rights and all that. Equal rights is the mother of the disparity for African-Americans. Mm -hmm. Because equality really doesn't help them. Right. Because right. we need equity. Yeah. We need equity, right. exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, it can so be equal, <coughs> but it can't be one size fits all. Exactly. These groups are going to need yeah. more, so we need the equity, right. So, the, um, And I hope that the, the audience understand the difference between equality and equity. Equality, right. we're all equal. Equity actually gives the person that who needs the most, right. the most help. The most help. People still going to need yeah. some groups. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's a really good point. Natalie, do you have a question so, for Dr. Salinas? Yes, I do have a question. Um, do you believe it is too late to reteach these instances of biases in older generations who have grown up with sexual racism? So should we be focusing on children? And if so, how do we raise younger generations to challenge no, it's not too late. It's never too late. In fact, if you don't start right now <clears throat> with the adults and, and uh, as well as the children, you will see another generation. Um, mm -hmm. So you need to start, yes, with the children, but if, if you don't do anything with the current adults and the current institutions to change um, the practices, it, it will continue. So this is the time to act in um, everything that we do can mm -hmm. help. And we have to believe in that. It's, it's, it's the fact that it's very difficult doesn't make it impossible. In fact, that's how things change radically. Right. From very difficult to a leap 
in yeah. change. Like just for example, right now we are not going to uh, take the GRE uh, right. as, as a and school. Yes. Yes. So that's 10 years ago, that right. wasn't even considered. <laughs> so that barrier that actually uh, only benefited uh, a group of wealthy uh, white, white male students. You were wealthy, whiter uh, males. You did quite well on the GRE. Yes. And for our guests, the GRE, if you don't know what that is, that's the graduate record examination. This is a t test that you often had to take before applying to graduate programs, and you had to receive a certain score. And for years, we knew that the GRE uh, was not fair. It was to not all predictive it for was, racial minorities. And it is yeah. not predictive. Um, of really success in graduate school. It's a slightly predictive in some studies of first semester grades and things like this, but really as a prediction uh, for success in grad school, it's more about the grit people have and more about their goals and their ability to achieve them. So yes, but the GRE was a definite barrier for students. So that, that is just one example in just a few months yeah. of how these discussions can result in change. Yes. Yeah. yeah they, they certainly can. And I'd like to, speaking with Natalie and Rolando, from a student standpoint, because um, as I said before on the call, our students are just a little bit younger than us. So for your, Dr. Salinas, you and I, so for the, <laughs> the generations ahead, what, how are students your age, you know, young, um, uh, 20s, in your 20s, um, how, how are they viewing the structural racism and violence and and ACEs, what, what's the pulse of the student population? And either one. So, Natalie? So I believe that right now with social media, mm -hmm. so many voices and stories and experiences are being shared. And I really think for the first time, a big platform and communication between many, many people are finally being brought into light. And mm -hmm. right now, today, we are challenging younger generations, we are challenging structural racism and we're mm -hmm. recognizing them and calling them out and it's powerful and I think so many people are even accepting their their privilege and realizing it and saying this is wrong, that mm -hmm. I didn't even realize my entire life that I have had things almost given to me on a silver plate that other people haven't right. and we're realizing it is wrong and social media has given such a powerful platform mm -hmm. and it's really exciting time. That's great. That's I great. think we're, we're angry. You're angry. And your voice, you know, as you know from the activist lab, your voice is so important. It'll be important forever. So right now, this oh. is a tumultuous time, right? Right now in our country. And so having your voice <laughs> is important. Rolando. No, I would definitely say that one of the things that struck me was when people was um, saying, but why can't just it be more um, pacific? Why can't we just don't have high-level-ended debates about race and racism and about policy and about programs and interventions that are culturally competent, that are diversified, that respond to the needs of right. each population. And again, if we go to the statistics and we try to analyze this, this movement that was created by um, a collective um, a state of frustration and a collective state of um, despairment and just um, these collective rage do create um, new policies and new approaches to things because already we have seen how the government has been responding to this movement by 
um, trying to even start a conversation, first of all, and second of all, um, creating new ways to help people are accountable for their own actions, which mm -hmm. is something that has not mm -hmm. been done in the past. Right. So I think that at the end is the um, discussion of who created who, and we have seen this discussion for a long time with um, was the chicken first or the egg first? <laughs> and we are asking now, was the race first or racism first? And we have seen that the discussion explains that racism created race because race is right. only mm -hmm. is, um, the, social a social construct, right. a social construction that has been created to perpetrate differences and justify discrimination and justify violence and justify um, putting other peoples in a position of power and a position of privilege. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very good. And it'll be your yeah. generations that will we'll take this forward. Um, on our last podcast, talking with Dr. Sappenfeld and Kirby about maternal and child health, I think it was Dr. Sappenfeld who said it may take generations. It may take two generations. I, I hope it doesn't take that long <laughs> so that we'll, we'll see some, some change. So um, Dr. Salinas, with the students, we, I always ask at this point, we've talked a lot about structural racism, we've talked about ACEs, we've talked about how this relates to violence. Um, what do you think should be our next steps as a community? And, you know, sort of what we were mentioning before, do you think it's going to take a long time for real change to occur? Not change on the surface, but real change. Yeah, well, um, what I can say to that, it's something that I learned from um, African-American uh, leaders in here in Tampa. Mm -hmm. um, two things. First, if you're not a, 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 one, per, a one person of color, right. then you should get on board with this because it's good for the whole society. Good. And you have to get on board with cultural humility. Mm. In which so true. Meaning open to learn about the experiences of African-American and other mm -hmm. minorities, and only them have the authority to talk about their own experiences. Right. Which takes me to the second point that I learned as well from them. It's nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. Meaning, right now, from now, at this moment, we don't need to study disparities on racism <coughs> and discrimination. Instead, we need to is do the study of disparities for the communities that are affected with the communities right. that are affected mm -hmm. in partnership with community organizations that are right there and that can start change yeah mm -hmm. right so we have to interact with the communities right yeah. and that's really important too you know academicians for a while have said well, we'll fix it. You know, we'll go into a community and we'll fix it. And then when the grant funding runs out or the research funding, what happens? They go away and they don't come back. And the community's like, well, thank you very much. You, we're not going to invite you back next time. So it's very important, very important, I agree. And, and it may just, take, may just take time, right? Because, but right now, this conversation, I think we have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge it. And we have to advocate for change, right? As you say, different kind of laws, laws that are not only promote equality, which we've had, right, but now the equity, I think those laws have to be, have to be looked at. So yeah. any other questions uh, for Dr. Salinas, Rolando, or, or Natalie? Comments. Or comments, <laughs> right. I would definitely like to say thank you um, for this space. I think that at the end, um, when we analyze what we have done, is we have created 
the whole research system um, in the way that we colonize society, uh, in the way that we went into communities, we told them, I know what you need and I'm gonna do what you need, yes. and you're not gonna be part of it. No. However, <laughs> um, community-based interventions have been proven to be more effective, have been proven to be more empowering to communities, are generating this whole system that Dr. Salinas was explaining on how to empower communities and involve them into the system, and I think that that is our responsibility as future researchers to see this and to acknowledge this, um, this need. Right. And, and I think institutions are going to have to change, you know, these you know, issues of segregation is going to have to change. Educational institutions, our move at the College of Public Health with the GRE is a step in the right direction, right? You want to see that's a real change. That's a real change for people. Exactly. Yes, Natalie. So I have to say that I, I, I'm hopeful. I am. I think the everything that has, be, especially with COVID, that has become amplified, uh, we, again, can recognize and we're calling out establishments and education systems and the government. And for the first time, I think people are being heard. And so I'm hopeful. Excellent. We need hope. We need advocacy. And I'm also hopeful um, that all, uh, all these efforts will not be over until oh, no. actually all Black Lives Matter in the East Coast. 100%. Yeah. A hundred percent. We all agree with you from the activist lab. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. On behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, our wonderful and informative guests, Dr. Salinas, and our great activist lab students, Rolando and Natalie, we thank you for joining us. And hey, keep listening. We have new segments coming soon for the podcast series on racism, health, and life. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Let us know how we're doing. Please email us at cophactivistlab at usf.edu. So until next time, this is Dr. Karen Liller. Hey, remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. Keep listening and join Advocation Change It Up. Tell your friends and family. We're on all media that where you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and more. So thank you again. And hey, when it's safe to be out and about, come see us in the Activist Lab.